everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Today we're continuing our series called Navigating Our Differences with Unity. We've been saying that often our urge to be right can overcome our call to be gracious. And when that happens, we stop resembling the Savior we've been called to follow. This series looks at a period in the life of the early church where they faced the same struggle and looks at the principles God gave to help them. Today we're looking at the wrong way to be right, and hopefully the right way as well. Perhaps the story of Paul and Oscar will help us to understand what we're talking about. The two men owned adjacent farms in the little town of Valley View, Alberta. Ironically, the town's motto is, portal to the peace. But Paul and Oscar couldn't seem to find any peace. The tension between them reached its head with discussions over a fence. Paul wanted to build a fence along their shared property line and split the cost. But Oscar refused to contribute. Knowing that he needed to contain his cattle, he decided to build the fence anyway. Once it was done, Oscar said to him, I see we have a fence. <laughs> to which Paul replied, what do you mean we? And then he warned him, I got the property line surveyed and built the fence two feet into my land. That means some of my land is outside the fence. And if any of your cows set foot on my land, I'll shoot them. Oscar knew that Paul wasn't joking. So he ended up building another fence two feet away right on the property line. Although they've both passed on, their double fence stands as a testament to the price we pay when our actions are based on what we think is right rather than what we know would be gracious. When we act on what we're free to do rather than what we ought to do. We're in a period of history when people feel angry with one another over the decisions that they've made and their responses to the pandemic. No matter what side people are on, they think that they're right and they have their reasons for believing so. I've seen people exert a lot of energy trying to prove that they're right. But what I want to look at today is how to act when you think you're right and to examine some of the wrong ways to be right. To do that, I'd ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23. If you don't have a Bible, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Uh, Romans 14, starting at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of God. Now, I'd like you to consider three principles from this passage that I feel we've lost sight of over the last year. The first is this, forcing the right answer isn't right. Christians need to be sensitive to the role a person's conscience plays in guiding their decisions on secondary issues. Pressure and conformity can actually be dangerous to someone's faith. So forcing the right answer isn't right. To understand how this principle gets worked out in this passage, I need to set the scene. If you were with us last time, you know that there were two groups in the church divided over what to do with meat sold in the marketplace, because it typically came from leftover sacrifices in local pagan temples. One group followed the example of Daniel and his friends and chose to go vegetarian rather than risk association with idolatry. The other group followed the teachings of Jesus who declared all foods clean and enjoyed their barbecue ribs and brisket. The Apostle Paul clearly and emphatically sided with the meat lovers. In verse 14, for instance, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And in verse 20, he repeats his position again, saying, everything is indeed clean. And this was his consistent message. In 1 Corinthians 10, 25, he said, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So Paul is clear on what the right answer is when it comes to a Christian's attitude toward meat. It's clean. But watch what he says in the second half of verse 14. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Even though the meat itself is completely fine to eat, if the person thinks that they're committing a sin by eating it, it actually is a sin for them. And that's because in their heart, they're choosing to do something that they believe is wrong. It's like if you go to a neighbor's house and you see some cookies set out on a plate in the kitchen. If you take one when they're not looking, that's stealing, even if you find out afterward that they had baked the cookies for you. The point is, your motivation is as important as the act itself. Now, that doesn't mean that psychopaths can innocently kill people as long as they don't feel bad about it, but it does mean that we need to not only consider what a believer does, but why they do it. And one of the things that I feel we've forgotten during the pandemic is that most believers feel bound by their conscience in how they've responded. There are sincere Christians who believe that getting a vaccine would mean defiling their bodies and forsaking their trust in God to protect them. And there are Christians who are just as sincere, who are convinced that getting a vaccine is an important way that they love their neighbors and submit to their authorities. What I often hear is people convinced of the sincerity of their own conscience, but accusing people who respond differently of acting either in fear or rebellion either compromising their faith or corrupting the faith. Why do we assume that we know someone's motivation? And why don't we care? What's so different about the Apostle Paul is that he assumes the sincerity of those with whom he differs. He treats them with compassion and respect in the judgment calls they've made. He treats their conscience delicately because he knows with too much pressure, he can actually lead people into sin 
by forcing them to do the right thing. He wants to nudge people toward a more mature response, but it has to come from their faith. He knows that they need to believe differently before they can act differently. That's why he says what he does in verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is a principle I feel we've forgotten during the pandemic, but it's one we need to apply in all kinds of areas in our lives. Parents need to remember this. If you have a five-year-old, then put on your boots is good enough. But as your child gets older, you can't just keep forcing behavior that your child doesn't understand. If you don't work on forming the conscience and nurturing your child's faith and understanding, then you're just going to end up trying to control their outward behavior with fear and guilt and anger and rules. With a young child, you work from the outside in. But as a child grows, you have to work from the inside out. Forcing the right answer isn't right. But next, Paul shows that the right answer without love isn't right either. Carelessness and insensitivity aren't justified because you've got the truth. The right answer without love isn't right. Now, given how clearly Paul had stated his position on eating meat, it's surprising to see how strongly he warns people not to eat meat in certain situations. In verse 13, after telling people to stop judging one another, he says this, Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The word for stumbling block originally referred to a, little, a literal rock in your path that you might trip over but it came to be used for anything that could make you stumble spiritually. Hindrance similarly means trap, but could be used for any kind of spiritual obstacle or temptation as well. The meat-eating Christians in Rome were causing a spiritual minefield for their vegetarian brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's telling them, cut it out. In verse 20, he says, it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul's not demanding that they give up meat altogether, but he does want them to think about other people more than themselves. His biggest issue with people who think that they're right is that they act selfishly right. They're so focused on themselves, they don't think of the implications of their actions on others. They make such a big deal of their freedom to eat meat that it causes a spiritual crisis for the people who think that it's wrong. That's what he's saying in verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, the farmer in Alberta who built his fence two, two feet inside the property line and threatened to shoot his neighbor's cows if they crossed the line, he was completely in his legal rights to do so. At least, I, su I assume that he was. <laughs> but it was an act of spite and revenge just the same. He had the right to do it, but it wasn't right. And that kind of behavior, if done in the name of Christ, could be devastating for your younger Christians looking on. You can imagine some of the recently converted Jewish Christians in Rome. You've been taught all of your life that certain foods are off limits. It was just assumed that being kosher was the same as being godly. 
And then you get invited to this barbecue with someone from your new church family, and they've picked up half-priced steaks at the Temple of Saturn and are serving side orders of bacon and shrimp. When you try to politely decline, they act like you're refusing communion. What's wrong with you? You're not still following all those stupid rules, are you? Can you see how devastating that would be? You'd come away thinking, I'm not sure these people know God at all. And there have been Christians on both sides of the pandemic response who have been just as reckless about the impact their words have had on those who are watching. It's unloving to treat people's convictions carelessly. I love the way the Samoan rugby team handled this in the 2019 Rugby World Cup. The championship was hosted in Japan, which, with a, which is a country with a deep disdain for tattoos because of their association with organized crime. The Samoans, on the other hand, have a 3,000-year-old history of tattoos that's important to their culture and identity. They could have easily argued their right to express themselves. Rather than protest or object, though, their manager just said, we're not in Samoa now, and out of respect, asked his team to wear special sleeves to cover their tattoos. The takeaway for me wasn't the decision itself so much as the sensitivity to think through the impact of their actions on those around them. Obviously, it's not always as clear-cut. Do you know what Paul says the answer is sometimes? Don't say anything. Did you notice that in verse 22? He says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, he's not saying stop sharing your faith, stop uh, sharing the gospel. By faith, he's talking about their convictions about these secondary issues. If you're unsure how people are going to take it, keep your judgment calls to yourself. Practice some divine biting of your lip. That's actually a biblical thing. You don't have to advertise all of your opinions. In fact, if you do, you're liable to trip someone up spiritually. If you're convinced that you are right, make sure that you are loving and gracious about how you're right. Be a stepping stone for people's faith, not a stumbling block to them. So we've said that forcing the right answer isn't right. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt, treat their conscience with respect, and not use guilt, shame, or insults to change people. Then we've said that the right answer without love isn't right. How we act isn't just dictated by what we have the freedom to do. If we're about love, then we're about other people, and that means we think about the impact of our words, and sometimes we just keep our opinions to ourselves. The final principle of this passage is that the right answer isn't always the point. I think this is counterintuitive for many Christians. God has given us his word as a source of truth. Jesus called himself the truth. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth. And Christians are called to stand for the truth. So we often wrongly conclude that the point of our faith is being right. But the right answer isn't always the point. In fact, it seldom is. I want you to notice how little space Paul de devotes in this passage to debating the right answer to the meat question. In fact, he does the opposite. Take a look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Essentially, he's saying, enough of the meat already. 
Why are you acting like this is the heart of your faith? Interestingly, it's the same problem that the Pharisees had only in reverse. The Pharisees meticulously measured a tenth of all their spices to give to God. But Jesus said they'd neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In the Pharisees' case, they let their rules get in the way of what was most important. With the meat-loving Romans, they let their freedom get in the way of what was most important. And what was most important, Paul tells them, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. By righteousness, he means doing the right thing and how they treat each other. Peace is maintaining harmony between brothers and sisters in Christ. And joy is about making the church family a place of spirit-filled celebration instead of infighting and division. They've become so preoccupied with the meat-vegetables debate that they had lost sight of what should have been central. Have you let that happen over the last year? Have you let your conversations become dominated by masks and vaccines instead of Jesus and his word? Have you gotten more worked up about the pandemic than you have about the gospel? Do you see others in the family of God as brothers and sisters in Christ or friends and allies in your position? There are only two ways I know how to change this focus what you feed your mind, and what you make your goal. Romans 12, 2 is all about what you feed your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you fill your mind with people who feed your anger and outrage, don't be surprised if you resemble them. Let God's word shape you instead. Set aside time to read it. Make time to reflect on it. Keep a verse in front of you throughout the day. And don't fixate on the kinds of voices that aren't compatible with it. So be careful how you feed your mind. But also watch what you make your goal. Hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1 when he addresses the same debate in the church in that city. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Can you see what's happening? There's this debate about whether you should or shouldn't eat meat that's been offered to idols. And some of the people have become, become consumed in researching arguments for their position. They hadn't just looked into it enough to become fully convinced in their mind as we saw last time. They were way past that. They were out to get a PhD in the my position is right school of meat eating. And Paul says, I know you've got your charts and your verses, but the way that you've you're consumed with this, just making you more proud. Put your focus on love instead, working on building people other, other people up instead of building up your ego. Work on building up the church's unity, not building the arguments to prove that you're right. As he says in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. When he says mutual upbuilding, he's using a construction term. We're living stones in the temple of God and we're under construction. You're either building the temple up, tearing it down, or letting it get run down through your neglect. We tear it down whenever we stop acting in love. We let it get run down whenever we lose sight of what the Bible says is central. 
and we build it up when we invest love in one another and the church's mission. So let's work at building it up. Let's encourage each other's faith. Let's stir one another to get into the word. Let's make Christ known. Let's look for opportunities to serve each other. Look for opportunities to love our neighbors. And let's remember that that's what eternity will remember. And remember the one who went before us. Jesus didn't let Herod's tyranny or the Pharisees plot him, keep him from coming what he came to do. He wasn't drawn into a debate with Pilate or an argument with a mocking crowd. He kept his focus on the cross and his sacrifice of love for sinners. If you've received that love, he calls you to follow him and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for one who perfectly modeled for us a life given over to love, given over to personal sacrifice, a life given over to serving his enemies by coming to give his own life as a sacrifice for sin. Thank you for the peace that we have with you because of his death on the cross. Heavenly Father, we pray that our words, our actions, our thoughts would be guided by his example and would be ultimately a grateful response to the love that we have received in him. Change us, shape us, fill us and give us the grace to change. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Now I hope this message has helped you to see the wrong way to be right and how we can respect one another when we disagree and not get sidetracked from what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law. If it stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email leave, or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.